HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Over the past few years, the call to label foods that contain genetically modified ingredients has been at the forefront of food advocacy efforts. And yet, there continues to be a great deal of misinformation about what this technology actually is. In fact, more than half, about 57%, of adults in the U.S. believe that genetically modified foods are generally unsafe to eat. With the recent release of the first-ever requirements for labeling of bioengineered foods, I thought it was time to revisit this topic and unpack what the term genetic modification means, what it entails, and how prevalent genetically modified organisms are in our food system today. Joining me to discuss is Greg Jaffe, the director of the Project on Biotechnology at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, or CSPI. Greg is an international expert on agricultural biotechnology and biosafety, and he works on biosafety regulatory issues in the U.S. and throughout the world. Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Okay, so before we get started, can you um, tell us a little bit about CSPI and your work on the Agricultural Biotechnology Project? Okay, so CSPI is a nonprofit uh, consumer organization located in Washington, D.C. We've been around for, oh, I don't know, 48, 49 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we work on uh, nutrition issues, food and nutrition issues, on behalf of consumers. And uh, we publish a newsletter called the Nutrition Action Health Newsletter that has about 600,000 subscribers in the U.S. Wow. And uh, the vast majority of our funding comes from those member subscribers. We take no uh, grants from the federal government, and we take no funding from industry. Um, and we never have, uh, so we keep our independence, and so we don't have even a... Uh, no bias. You uh, have a perception of a conflict of interest. Yeah. And how does your work on biotechnology fit within this, the broader organization? So, as I said, we have a number of advocacy projects, uh, the biggest involving issues like nutrition, um, but we work on areas like school foods and allergens and uh, food additives and a host of different issues. And one of the issues is the agricultural biotechnology um, or genetically engineered uh, crops and animals. And so I run that project. And your background, you are a lawyer by training, right? That is correct. So I have an undergraduate degree in biology uh, and government from Wesleyan University, and then I have a law degree from Harvard. So you kind of put those two things together to 
uh, inform the work that you do now. How did you kind of come to work uh, in this field specifically? Um, I actually goes back to college. I wrote my college thesis on this topic. On, uh, on biotechnology? On biotechnology and wow. the question of regulation back uh, too many years ago. <laughs> date myself. But I was a biology and government major and wanted to sort of combine those two areas and looked for an interesting topic to combine them. Wow. So you just got right into it because that's... Yeah. And then I, then I didn't do it for a number of years. Then I came back to it. Right. So you're sort of on the forefront, it seems like. Of this of this issue area, um, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna get into the wonderful world of GMOs now. But in order to do that, I think we need to get our terminology down. And this is something that I find I have been confused um, for a long time about. So I just want to lay it all out there. We have bioengineering, genetically engineered, genetically modified, gene editing. GMOs. What what are we talking about here? Can we um, can we just sort of go through what we're going to be like the terminology we'll be using to discuss these issues um, and what we should be using? So, what is? Let's just start with bioengineering. What is that? So, so actually, I'm going to actually go back one step if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So, because everything in agriculture is comparative, um, and just like you know, so you can't you know, and so we have to look at a, a number of different things. So let's let's first talk about traditional breeding. Yep. So we, you know, we, we uh, our farmers grow different kinds of crops, corn, soybeans, you know, fruits and vegetables. Our, our ranchers uh, grow different kinds of animals, cows, pigs, and things like that. And those um, organisms have been modified and manipulated by scientists and by farmers themselves over decades and centuries to get traits that are valuable to them. Okay. And so, you know, a watermelon today doesn't look like a watermelon looked like 300 years ago. Um, and, you know, we have seedless watermelons today. And that's and those are done with what we call traditional breeding, where a scientist might take two different varieties of the same crop and cross them, sexually reproduce them, mm-hmm. um, and try to get the traits of one into the other. Okay. Um, you can think about this as similar to the way, you know, humans might, you know, if... Uh, you know, one has uh, blue eye color and somebody has brown eye color coming together and some of your kids will have blue, some of them will have brown and that type of thing. So we can take, take different traits from, from crops. And so all the crops that we grow today are, you know, to a large extent, uh, domesticated. They aren't what would be in the wild. They mm-hmm. have been, farmers have saved the one, you know, the corn varieties that have the biggest kernels or the sweetest corn. Um, and then scientists have, you know, bred into those through different traditional methods, uh, disease resistance or other kinds of traits that would be helpful to those farmers or to the yield or to those crops. So that's sort of what used, that's what's happened to date. Yeah. Uh, Then genetic engineering came along um, and genetic engineering um, and what people call, uh, people call GMOs or genetic modification and what I think uh, the government has now called bioengineering is a technique where we can take a gene that has a specific trait from one species and introduce it into another species. Okay. So we can take a trait that's in a microorganism and put it into a, a corn plant. So the difference in the past was that we could only take other traits from corn. So we could take it from a corn variety in South America and introduce it to a corn variety in the United States, but we couldn't take something from a microorganism and introduce it into corn because those don't sexually reproduce. Right. But with genetic engineering, we could extract that gene of interest from an organism uh, that produces a specific protein, that produces a specific trait that that somebody thinks is beneficial for some purpose, for the environment, for health, for whatever the reason is, Mm -hmm. uh, and introduce it into a crop. And they do that at the cellular level in the laboratory uh, where they introduce that gene into the DNA of the crop. It gets integrated into the DNA, and then all of the offspring of that single cell have that DNA introduced into it just like it has all its other DNA introduced and then so through normal sexual reproduction and that that gene stays within that crop's gene pool. And by microorganism, sorry, by, what is an example of a microorganism so, so, that would be introduced? So the, so the example I give of a genetic engineered crop, and I use the term genetic engineered because I think that's probably the most scientifically accurate Okay. because as I said before, in some ways all crops have been genetically modified. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not, they're not similar to what was, you know, their wild relatives. Um, 
uh, genetic engineering, I think, is more accurate. Um, but so, for example, uh, and you don't have to take it. You could take it from a microorganism. You could take it from another plant. Or you could take it from an animal. You could take it from any organism. Uh, DNA, all organisms have DNA, and all organisms read DNA the same way and produce proteins the same way. So uh, DNA is conserved among all the different organisms that exist in the universe. Um, but to give you an example, there is a, a soil microorganism called Bacillus thuringiensis, uh, or BT for mm-hmm. short. And farmers have been spraying this microorganism on their plants for the last 60, 70, 80 years as, an or, as a pesticide, as a biological pesticide. You would spray these, micro, these BTs, these microorganisms, on your crops, and the, uh, the pests, the insects would die, and, the pet, and the, they wouldn't cause uh, any problems to the crop. And so scientists went and looked and said, okay, well, what's the toxin in BT that's actually killing the insect? Mm-hmm. And they found those genes. They extracted those genes out of the BT microorganism, and they introduced them through genetic engineering into a corn plant. And so then the corn plant has this, this toxin, and so now when the pest eats the leaves or the roots of the corn plant, it ingests this toxin, this biological pesticide. Mm-hmm. So you don't, farmers don't have to spray it on their crop. Instead, it's being ingested um, by the by the microorganism by by the insect and the insect goes off and dies and the plant doesn't have the damage that the insect would have caused okay Um, in most cases the bts um, and there are you know you don't have to go very far anywhere in the country to find a corn field that has a uh, a variety with a bt gene in it and similarly most of the cotton that's grown in the united states has a BT gene introduced into it. Um, And the reason that was done was uh, it reduced the amount of chemical insecticides, synthetic insecticides that were sprayed by farmers to kill those insects. So instead of spraying a synthetic insecticide, it already um, has the built-in. We called it a built-in biological pesticide in, in the plant itself. So that's an example of a trait that has been introduced. Some of the other traits that have been introduced include apples that are non-browning, uh, you know, uh, potatoes that are low in acrylamide, uh, high, uh, soybeans that have have, have a high oleic uh, oil content. So they've changed the oil profile. Those are the types of crops, but the vast majority of them uh, have either a built-in biological pesticide or are are resistant to an herbicide, which means you can spray the herbicide over the top of the crop, and the herbicide, which normally would kill a crop, mm-hmm. doesn't kill the crop, and instead it just kills the weeds around the crop. Okay, so this these are all examples of genetically right. engineered crops. Right. And, and the vernacular, so most people, uh, while I think the most scientifically accurate term is genetic engineering, most people would call these genetically modified or GMOs. Okay. Um, around the world. And now the U.S. government, in a recent law, defined them as bioengineered. Oh, that's where they landed with that. Okay. Yes. So, uh, but, but for all intents and purposes, those terms are synonymous. We could call them bioengineered, genetically modified, genetically engineered, and actually in inter- the international arena, the international treaties called them living modified organisms, wow. LMOs. Yeah. But Why not, for Why not introduce another one? <laughs> it's the use of this technique of introducing at the cellular, at the individual cell level of, of new DNA that codes for a specific trait into an organism's DNA. Okay. So that's, that's so helpful. Um, and that's like one bucket, but the other thing I've been hearing a lot about now recently is gene editing. So what is gene editing and how is it different than genetic engineering? So gene editing, and a lot of people have heard of the uh, the term CRISPR, mm-hmm. um, or then there's some other uh, similar molecules, um, is similar to genetic engineering. And in fact, in some instances, it can be identical, but it also is different. And so what gene editing does is, so scientists were able to find a, um, a mechanism in single-celled um, organisms that uh, was a protection against virus invasion. 
uh, when a virus invaded a single-cell microorganism, it, it introduced its own DNA into that cell, um, and the virus now recognizes, and so the rec- set up a system where it rec- if, it rec- if a virus was to infect it, it would be able to recognize that DNA and cut it out. Okay. And so what you have is a series of molecules that can recognize specific sequences of DNA and cut the DNA and cut out the DNA. And that's what a, so gene editing is precisely cutting DNA at a specific location. And so the CRISPR molecule uh, is a guide RNA. It's a piece of, of RNA that identifies where in the genome one wants to go. And then the Cas9 is an enzyme. It's a molecule that, an enzyme that cuts the DNA at that spot. And when you cut the DNA, so that, so the difference, one of the differences between this and genetic engineering is when we introduce DNA at, in genetic engineering, we introduce it randomly into mm-hmm. the cell. We don't know where we're going to put it. It just shows up. Because uh, you can't control editing, that? You can't you control can, for that? Is there, like, there's no way to control where there's you put no it? no way to control for it. The mechanisms of introducing the DNA are random. Okay. And so we can't, we, we, you know, you, you can't really identify where it's going to go until it's in there. Okay. But with gene editing, we can precisely say we want to make a cut in the DNA at a specific location in the genome. And so then, so then we can do two things once we've made, we can do several things once we've made that cut. We can introduce a gene, and that makes it very similar to genetic engineering or GMO. We can introduce a gene from another species, but the difference is that we're doing it very precisely. We know exactly where we're putting it in. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we also can uh, delete some DNA. We can introduce, we can make the cut, and when the cell corrects the cut DNA, mends it, it can lose a couple of base pairs. And what that, in fact, does is silences the gene. So if we cut at a specific place, we can, we can silence an existing gene. In other words, turn that gene off so it doesn't produce the trait that it would otherwise produce in that organism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we can do. Um, so, we can, so that's something that you can't do with genetic engineering. So we can, and we also can correct. If there is already a mutation in that particular gene, we can go in and correct that mutation. So we could take a gene that's not operating function correctly, and we can now make it operate function correctly. And we also could, for example, turn on a gene to express it more than it might otherwise be expressed. So gene editing gives us the ability to make a lot of other changes. Right. One of the major differences is that is that we can um, gene editing. We don't need to use. Uh, we don't need to uh, have introduced foreign DNA. We don't need to introduce DNA from another species. We can just make the changes within the genome itself. And is that beneficial in some way? It gives us it gives us is a different tool. It gives us ability to to make different kinds of changes and make and, and address different kinds of traits. So so let me give you an example. Um, so there are some cows, and I always forget whether it's the dairy cows or the beef cattle mm-hmm. that are have a mutation in a gene so that they don't grow horns. Oh. Okay, um, and they're in one variety of cows, but they're not in another one. And in the, again, I can't forget whether it's the beef or the milk cows, but let's say it's in the milk cows. In the beef cows, we have to, they have, they have the horns um, in order for them not to hurt themselves and also for them not to hurt farm workers, they're usually dehorned. Okay. And that's a fairly, you know, painful, painful process yeah. for the cow itself, and it's difficult oh. to do. And so mm-hmm. with gene editing, uh, scientists went into the genome of that particular cow variety and edited that gene to make it the same as the one that was in the dairy cow now be in the beef cattle so that those cows don't grow horns. What, when did that happen? So that's happened with a company and there are some, it's an experimental stage. It's not a commercial okay. product yet. I was like, but are they on the market? I did not hear not about this. Yet, okay. But there are some cows at UC Davis yeah. that are now you know, the, that are naturally pulled, as they call them. Wow. Okay. Um, well, and so, so that was able to, you were able to do that with gene editing, hmm. um, which we couldn't do, which you couldn't do with genetic engineering. And as I said, all you did there was silence a gene that was operating 
and we knew which one to silence because we could tell from the other variety of cows that didn't have the horns what was the difference. So in thinking about this um, technology, we have these two different kinds of technology. Uh, you know, wh- what is the most prevalent in our food system today? Like, do how much food on the market, if any, was produced using, um, like, seeds that were edited, the, were in, the, in which the gene was edited, used that technology, versus so, engineered? So, so for ge- genetically modified crops, or GMOs, or genetic engineered crops, mm-hmm. there are 10 crops that have been, that are commercially grown in the United States. Okay. There's corn, cotton, soybeans, um, corn, cotton, soybeans, canola, and each of those, more than 90% of the acreage of those crops in the United States have a genetic engineered variety that's being grown. Okay. And then there are smaller amounts of, sh- oh, and, and sugar beets is also a very high amount. Um, and then you have smaller amounts of sweet corn, papaya, yeah, papaya, squash, apples, potatoes, and alfalfa. Um, and so there are varieties of those crops that are genetic engineered, and therefore those, some of those make it to the f- supermarket uh, as whole foods, like you might have sweet corn that's genetically engineered or an apple that's genetically engineered. And just to be or, totally clear, sweet corn is the, the type of corn we eat when we go you know, to the, to the market, right? It's, that's that, just the word that, for, that we use for corn that humans use, eat. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we grow you know, millions and millions of acres of corn. Most of it's field corn that's uh, for animal feed and for industrial purposes. And if you looked at a, uh, an ear of it, you wouldn't want to eat it. It's, not, it's very starchy and doesn't look very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but sweet corn, we grow a very small amount of that. And that's what you and I would think of as corn on the cob or corn in a can or what you would have. Uh, Popcorn. <laughs> um, so, so genetic engineered crops have been on the market for you know 20 years, and they're grown and they enter our food supply as both whole foods and, 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 and processed ingredients mm-hmm. that are in foods. Um, gene edited, gene editing is much newer. That is sort of the new techniques. And as far as I know, there are only two gene edited crops that are being grown in farmers' fields in very, very, very small amounts. And uh, one is a herbicide-tolerant canola from a company called Cebus, and one is a high-oleg soybean from a company called Calex. And both of those, I believe, are being made into oil that is used in food production, but not that consumers can buy oils with, with those from those fields in the supermarket. Why, why have high... What's the benefit, just curious, between uh, in having high-oleic uh, soybeans? So the argument that the companies would make is that... Um, it has a heart-healthier uh, oil profile, and uh, it goes... So we used to grow... We used to use a lot of soybean oil uh, for food processing and food production, um, but then it, it produced a lot of trans fat, and trans fat is no longer acceptable. Yep. And so the soybean oil has lost... It's lost in the market to other types of oil, and the high oleic allows that soybean oil to come back and be utilized. Okay. So when we think about, um, I mean, it seems, it seems to me that the most, like the way, mm, let me, let me try, let me try this again. When we think about like consuming genetically engineered foods, is it correct that we get those mostly through processed foods? Um, so very few like fruits and vegetables and whole foods, what we call whole foods will actually be genetically engineered. That's correct. Okay. Um, most of the way that the genetic engineered crops that I mentioned, the 10 of those enter our food supply, is through highly processed ingredients. And so the corn, the field corn that's been genetically engineered, is made into high fructose corn syrup and corn oil and uh, corn syrup and, you know, uh, corn uh, malodextrin and other, you know, corn starch other corn product, corn ingredients that then are utilized in processed foods. Okay. Um, how much of and, the... Oh, sorry. Sorry to cut you off. And what I might mention is that when we make many of those highly processed ingredients, such as the oil from corn or mm-hmm. the sugar from sugar beets, 
um, the process of making those ingredients eliminates all of the DNA and all of the protein. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we make a genetic crop, we add a little bit of new DNA to it, a, an organism that has a lot of DNA already itself, mm-hmm. and that new DNA usually produces a protein. And there are lots of different proteins produced in every cell. And so when we when we make oil from corn or from soybeans or we make sugar from sugar beets, we eliminate all of the DNA and all of the protein. So if you actually had corn oil that was made from genetically engineered corn and you have corn oil that's made from conventional corn or traditional corn, uh, they're biologically and chemically identical. You cannot tell the difference. Huh. So I'll just mention so, that, that, you know, so it's, so that seems like a really important we point. We have though. in our food supply yeah. are derived from a genetically engineered variety, but they may not actually be themselves genetically engineered. So, what did that does that have health implications, or I mean, I'm, like, what is the the upshot of that? Is this just like an example of how this issue has sort of been very much misunderstood in the public? Yeah, I think that I mean, I, there's, I mean. Um, you know, all of the genetically engineered crop varieties that are grown today in the United States, uh, the National Academy of Sciences said have, uh, they were unaware of any health or food safety concerns from any of those mm-hmm. crops. So, um, you know, they've been found to be substantially equivalent to their conventional counterparts. So I don't think there's a health concern right. from any of these crops that are being grown. But I point this out because um, people may think that they're eating something that's engineered when, in fact, it's derived from something that was engineered, but it it itself is not engineered. It itself is no different than the conventional variety. How are you to tell the difference? Well, you couldn't because it's oil. I mean, oil is, you know, oil doesn't have any DNA or protein, so... Right. Okay. So so if you, I mean, there are some countries that label it and require it to be said that this is this came from genetically engineered corn versus this oil that Derived. came from non-genetically engineered corn. Okay. But I'm saying you can't do a test, huh. and there's no physical difference okay. between them. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break just to hear a word from our sponsors, but stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we are talking all about genetic engineering with Greg Jaffe, who's the director of the Project on Biotechnology for CSPI. I guess then I want to kind of jump ahead to, I want to talk about the labeling law then and whether or not this has anything, this issue that we're we're discussing now has anything to do with that labeling law. Um, And then I'm going to come back to some of the questions that I have around it, like prevalence in other marketplaces for genetically engineered ingredients um, or seeds and ingredients. But, okay, so in 2000, what, July 2016, Obama signed the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Law. Um, can you tell us where this law stands today? I mean, the USDA just came out with its final guidance, right? What does this mean right. and what does this law entail? Right, so uh, Congress passed the National Bioengineered Disclosure Law and, uh, and President Obama signed it in the end of two, in 
end of July 2016, and that law gave authority to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to their Agricultural Marketing Service, uh, the uh, authority to implement the law. And part of the way to implement that law was to issue regulations, and they were given two years to implement those regulations. Uh, they did not meet that deadline, but then in December, late December of 2018, they did finalize those implementing regulations. And so now uh, the law is implementable, and starting in 2020, uh, food manufacturers will have to disclose foods that contain bioengineered ingredients. Okay. And, um, all right, so this, what does this have to do, what does that really mean they're going to have to disclose? Like, there was, there was a lot of, like, how will they have to disclose it? So, so okay, so the law, as I said, so, so interesting things about the law, mm-hmm. it's a disclosure law, mm-hmm. it's not a labeling law, mm-hmm. um, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, but what the law says is that for foods that are bioengineered, and we can get to the definition of that in a minute, mm-hmm. um, the food manufacturer, so the, the person who is the, the company who has produced the food that the consumer is buying, has to disclose, and they have the option of disclosing in one of three ways. They can disclose with text on the label, on the package of the product, what mm-hmm. most of us would call a label. Um, they can disclose through a symbol on the package. You, many people may, may be familiar with the USDA organic symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, USDA was tasked with uh, developing a symbol that could be put on a package that would say that the, that, that food had bioengineered ingredients in it. Um, or they can do an electronic disclosure. They can have a smart label, a QR code, or something on the package that says, for more information, scan here, and you could then use your phone, scan, which would take you to a website, and on that website there would be information about whether the product contained bioengineered ingredients. So they can do all three of those. Those three of those options. Those are options. Right. Uh, The regulations actually added a fourth option, which is a text. So a, a company could say, text this number. Oh. on the package for more information and the uh, person could get back a, a text telling them whether there's a bioengineered ingredient in that food or not. But as I said, so that's why it's called a disclosure law because it's not necessarily on the label Got or it. on the package. It could be electronic. Um, and it is up to the food manufacturer. It's in their discretion to decide which of those four methods they choose to use to disclose. Okay. I have to say, I saw an earlier version of the, like the label, what the label could look like, and it looked pretty friendly to me. Oh, you mentioned, you're talking about the symbol. Yeah, the symbol. Sorry, not the label, the symbol. Yes. It looked like very cheery. (laughs) Right. So they did propose three different potential symbols. Um, They ended up with one symbol, which I think was the most neutral of the three, but I think there was a lot of comments by many stakeholders that... (laughs) that the symbols were not particularly neutral. Yeah. I was like, uh, oh, maybe I'll have that. That looks good. <laughs> so, so so, that is correct. There was, uh, but they did choose one symbol that is, that is, uh, was, was the least, uh, that, that the least number of stakeholders complained about, let's say. <laughs> okay. So in thinking about this disclosure law, um, can, I just want to, piece this out a little bit and make sure that I'm understanding it correctly. If the way that we consume, the majority of the, the, how we consume genetically engineered, um, products are through, or ingredients are through these highly processed foods, um, like through things like oils and sugars. Um, but yet we can't totally like scientifically tell the difference between foods or ingredients that were derived from genetically engineered seeds and those that weren't, what's the purpose of the label of the disclosure law? I feel like I'm missing some, can you help me kind of bridge the gap? Maybe I'm totally, um, you know, so, yeah. so, the, so, the, so the disclosure law, as I said, has a definition of bioengineered and the definition that Congress chose was, uh, a bioengineered food is something that does have uh, 
modified genetic material in it. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, um, USDA and their regulations determined that if there is no engineered content in the ingredient or the food, then it does not need to be disclosed. And so some of those highly processed ingredients I mentioned to you, uh, if there's no DNA or protein left in them, okay. like the oils or the sugars, they don't need to be disclosed. Okay. Um, Congre- uh, USDA did allow the companies who want to voluntarily disclose that information. They can voluntarily <laughs> disclose that. I'm sure a lot uh, of ra- are raising their hand for that. <laughs> um, but in order to do that, they have to use a different different wording that says derive from or a different symbol that says derive from, making a distinction from the other disclosures that would say that this is a bioengineered food or contains a bioengineered ingredient. For this voluntary disclosure, they'd have to say it's derived from a bioengineered crop. Okay. Type of thing. So, um, so that's why I mentioned that distinction earlier is because it does have impacts on the disclosure law as to right. what would or not be disclosed. So if people wanted to voluntarily disclose that, they'd have to uh, have, in, have information through the food chain that the corn, for example, that they purchased to use to make the oil was genetically engineered at the, at the field. Okay. So you know, they'd have some records or something to say that it was genetically engineered, the corn we used. For the, in the United States, where 90 to 95% of the acreage of corn is, is genetic engineered, that's fairly easy to, to figure out. Right. The, so the def, default is everything is engineered unless you can show that... That it <laughs> that, isn't. That you bought some that was specifically not engineered. Yeah. And specially kept uh, separated from the vast majority of corn that is grown. Right. But for other crops, that would not necessarily be the case. Uh, there are only a few varieties of apples that are engineered, so most apples that we purchase are not engineered. Yeah, so, I, I'm just thinking like cue the need for block tech tech, you know, blockchain technology. I feel like maybe not need, but I feel like this could be a big intervention area, maybe in the in the future um, for determining just where your crop came from, your food came from, like very very beginning. Um, okay, so in terms of just like big players. You know, you think of like genetically modified, engineered seeds. Obviously, Monsanto, Bayer, now Bayer. Are there any other big, big companies that are involved, basically, or that have a lot of these products on the market? So, for the GMOs that are currently grown by farmers, you know, the vast majority of them, uh, the seed industry has been consolidated over the number of years, and so you have Bayer, which purchased Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Dow and DuPont, which came together and are now Corteva. Um, and you have Syngenta, which was purchased by the Chinese, a Chinese company. Um, so, you know, you really have three or four big seed companies, and they're doing a lot of the development of seed varieties, including genetically engineered varieties, um, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Is there some danger in that, do you think, or maybe not? I mean, I don't know if danger is the right word or some cause for concern that there are three big companies that are, you know, controlling this, who have a controlling stake in this technology. So I I don't, I mean. And I guess like the future of the food system writ large. So I know there are many people who are critical of the fact that there's a lot of consolidation in the seed sector Mm -hmm. and that, that puts the, uh, genetics of many crops in the hands of just a few companies who could control those um, a lot if they wanted to. But I think that that is an issue independent of whether they were genetically engineered or not. Ah, okay. So, because what we have seen in the marketplace is, so for example, 90% of the soybeans in the United States are, have a genetically engineered variety uh, being grown, ninety percent of the acreage of corn, more than ninety percent of the acreage of soybeans in the United States have a, a genetic variety being grown on those acres, and in many cases they include the what we call the Roundup Ready gene, the gene that makes the soybeans uh, tolerant to to the herbicide glyphosate, mm-hmm. and that gene is a gene that was 
sort of invented or found by Monsanto. So Monsanto, you know, has a license for that gene, a, a patent for that gene. Mm-hmm. Um, but while Monsanto itself and now Bayer produces seed that it sells to farmers, it also licenses that particular gene to hundreds and hundreds of small seed companies in the United States and around the world who then introduce that into their genetic background, into their seed varieties. So while we can say that 90 plus percent of the acreage of soybeans in the United States has the Roundup Ready gene in it, and the Roundup Ready gene is Monsanto's, not all of those 90 percent, 90 plus percent acreage are actually growing a Monsanto seed. They may be growing a few thousand different varieties of seeds, some of which are Monsanto varieties, some of which are Dowpont or or, uh, DuPont or Dow or Corteva varieties, and some of which are small seed companies. The one that develops seed for western Iowa and one that develops seed for the eastern shore of Maryland. Um, So so while um, they do have... Um, a lot of control over the genetic engineering that's been done to date. And they also control a lot of the seed system. I don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. There is also a lot of all other players who are doing, are using, utilizing these genes. So the idea is like they can't control the technology or the seed once it has been like passed on or used by, used no, once? No, they still or? control it. They, you know, they have licenses and they have contracts. And so those companies can only use them specific ways and, and the farmers may not be able to save those seeds and things like that. So they are still controlling their intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But but they are not... But uh, farmers have a choice of the different seeds they can purchase. They don't always have to purchase the seeds from those big three companies. Okay. Um, but certainly, it seems easier in some ways, depending on your resources and where you are. And it really you depends. To. You know, farmers, there's lots of different, you know, microclimates yeah. in agriculture, and, and farmers want seeds that work well in those microclimates. Mm-hmm. And not the big companies don't always work in those microclimates. And so there are other genetics that comp- small companies have developed that work in those climates. Uh, but they also work with the gene, with a, a, G, a G, uh, you know, a round of ready gene right. added to it at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so I just have um, a couple questions about getting back to like kind of prevalence in the marketplace. Um, where are there some countries that straight up ban the use of uh, genetically engineered seeds from the marketplace? Um, and wh- if so, where are they? So uh, I, I actually can't answer that question. Okay. I, mean, I know that there are country, countries that don't uh, grow or allow GM products into them. I don't know if those are bans or temporary moratoriums or what the legal basis is for those. Okay. And I can't tell you offhand which countries those are, but there are countries out there that, that don't want GM products. Okay. And I know there's a difference between those that, what about that, that don't like allow, that don't allow like the cultivation of, of genetically engineered seeds, but that also, but they do allow um, the, you know, to import those inputs, I guess, you know, ingredients or, or seeds that, or products that were used um, via genetic engineering. But what about labeling? Uh, are there, there are certainly countries that have labeling or disclosure requirements, right? Right. So, so maybe the best way to try to answer all your questions is, you know, there are some I don't know, 26, 28, it changes on a year-to-year basis, countries that grow genetically modified crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States, Canada, um, uh, Brazil, and Argentina are, two, are four of the largest. Okay. But there are countries um, on virtually every continent that do grow genetically engineered crops. Okay. So um, then there are countries that don't grow them, but that do import food made from those crops. So, for example, Japan or Korea don't grow genetic engineered crops, but they have approved those crops or foods made from those crops to be imported. Mm-hmm. 
uh, to there. And similarly, the European Union. So there are countries in the European Union, Spain, for example, that does grow genetically engineered crops. But there are other countries in the European Union that don't grow genetically engineered crops, but do allow the importation of foods and ingredients made from genetically engineered crops. Um, so there, so there, are, and then there are, as we said, some countries that don't allow even the importation of foods and ingredients made from genetically engineered crops. Um, with that in mind, there are also uh, various different kinds of labeling laws around the world. Um, the United States was one, probably one of the last ones to the table in, in passing its disclosure law. Hmm. Other countries have had labeling laws for a long time. The European Union has a labeling law uh, that. Uh, has sort of set maybe the international standard, and many countries have copied the European Union's labeling law that requires um, foods and ingredients, as well as ingredients derived from okay. engineered crops, to be required to be labeled on the package. Okay. Um, do they know something we don't know? or didn't know before this? Like, so what is their, do they have any additional information that we don't have that would cause them to be kind of first to the table, you know, like first in to say these need to be disclosed? Um, No, in fact, um, you know, so so to get a genetic engineered crop on the market, there's regulations in different countries. And in almost all countries around the world, it requires the Food Safety Agency to determine that there's no food safety risk from eating foods or ingredients made from those crops. Okay. And so, you know, the European Food Safety Agency has reviewed all the crops that are grown in the United States and come to the same conclusion that the National Academy of Sciences and the Food and Drug Administration here have come to, which is that um, those genetic engineered crops and the foods and ingredients made from them are no different than their conventional counterparts. So they've actually made the same scientific risk assessment and come to the same conclusion on safety as the United States has um, and other countries that are growing these crops. But they've chosen, they've chosen for other reasons to require labeling. In many instances, you know, many people have advocated for mandatory labeling um, under, you know, one of two rubrics. One is a right to know. Mm-hmm what's in our food and the other one has been a right to choose what's what 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 one wants to purchase and so you know that's been um those have been some of the arguments and there have been arguments made that they that they're, they're that that some people believe that they aren't safe and therefore they should be allowed to to avoid these okay crops and they want the labeling to do that um, our position at CSPI has always been, you know, we want to make sure anything's safe before it gets to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want labeling as a surrogate for safety and let making leaving it up to individual consumers to decide whether something is safe. I myself, as a consumer who purchases lots of food in the supermarket for my family, I want to go in and choose among all safe food. Right? I yeah, can you don't want for other reasons, but <laughs> yes. I don't want to have to decide whether this product is safe or not. Right. I want FDA or somebody else doing that for me. And if there's any question of safety, we don't, should not let it in the supermarket to begin with. Not let it in the supermarket, but let's put a label on it yeah. and let me decide if I want to <laughs> eat it or take a chance. Do I want to roll the dice um, today? <laughs> but, but, but there are many people who say the reason they want the labeling is because they think it's unsafe and therefore they want to avoid it. Um, and I mean, realistically speaking, like from a scientific perspective, this technology is not that old, right? Like 25 years or so. Do you think, or, you know, or does the organization think, do any of these um, international scientific organizations really believe that that's enough time in order to say definitively these kinds of crops and ingredients are safe to consume? Like, I just, I don't know, actually, the, kind of the standard of, uh, standard of limitations. So, you know, I think that the best minds have gotten together and determined what are the potential risks from adding some new DNA and a protein to a crop mm-hmm. and and how what is the ways to test to make sure that those risks don't materialize from a food safety perspective. And so that, you know, the state of the art is being done to assess those crops and ensure that they're not, they don't have any food safety risks associated with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
one of the things to keep in mind is that many of the crops and foods we eat are are not naturally safe or have or having or have components of them that are harmful to us so potatoes have toxins in them and celery has aller you know toxins in them um, we've bred those crops to reduce those toxins so that they don't uh, we don't uh, get enough of them to, so that they're harmful to us but you know nature has lots of toxins in it right so you know and, and we have peanuts and we know people you know die and go to the hospital and die from allergenic reactions to peanuts yeah um, but we still have peanuts on the marketplace that's true so the issue isn't you know so again safety in some sense of safety is a relative thing um, and that's why we say that these genetic engineered crops are as are as safe as their conventional counterpart because we don't have, while we don't have a genetic engineered peanut, if we did have a genetic engineered peanut, it probably still would be an allergen to some people. Right, right. <laughs> um, and and t- today, if we had to, if peanuts were a new food and had to approve them, they would never get approved. That's so funny to think about. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, um, you know, I think for the crops that we've had and the changes that we've made, there's been no evidence of any harm, and, and they've been in the food supply for quite quite a long time now. Um, okay, so we are going to take a really quick commercial break um, and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we're going to have a little bit of time to talk about, in a bit more depth, some of the controversies surrounding genetic engineering. Stay tuned. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Um, But in our next episode, we're going to be continuing our conversation with Greg Jaffe. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the controversies surrounding genetic engineering. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, the ever-patient and amazing Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of the Eating Matter of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. Um, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and let me know what you think. Leave me a comment. Okay, I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.